We are considering uh, the life of Abraham. We're continuing the series in the life of Abraham. And last week, Sam taught us about circumcision. And this week, we'll be looking at uh, the imminent judgment of Sodom. So our series has solidly gone PG-13 at this point. Uh, we hope it won't go beyond that. But let me, let me set up what, what I'm about to read. I'm going to read just a couple of verses actually from earlier in Genesis just because it says something about Sodom. It seems to be anticipating this account beforehand. Um, but bef- you're going to, in this passage, you're going to see Abraham dealing with what seems to be three men, just three visitors passing through the area. And the earlier part of chapter 18 is not in your bulletin, but if you get the chance, even today, read that account just because it's a, it's a beautiful account of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. These three strangers are passing through, and Abraham just kind of drops everything and just waits on them hand and foot. Doesn't know who they are. He just thinks they're three men passing through. Um, long story short, what the text is going to reveal is that two of these men are angelic beings in service of God. And actually in the text, they're going to go on away from where they've gathered to eat and be together with Abraham. They're going to move toward the city of Sodom and go into it. But there's this third man. And what Abraham comes to realize is that he is talking to God himself. Now, God is not a man, but he's manifesting himself as a man. He's visibly appearing as a man. Maybe you've heard the term anthropomorphism. That's just a clunky word for God taking on a human sort of trait to accommodate what we can understand and handle. So three men interacting with Abraham. And I'll say this last thing, and then I want to read the text. The only person who's ever called God's friend in Scripture, that that man was God's friend. And it says that Moses talked to him face to face like a man, like a friend. He dealt with Moses like a friend. But the only one who's called God's friend is Abraham. And in this text, what you really see is God communicating with Abraham As you would with a friend when there's no necessity that God tell him anything he's about to do, any plans. But he confides in him like a friend. That God is really that personal. So let's look. First off, just a couple of verses from Genesis 13 and then uh, mainly from chapter 18. Genesis 13 beginning in verse 12. At this point, his name has not been changed yet to Abraham. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot, that's his nephew, settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Then chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God of heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, almighty God, our Father, how we thank you that we can gather in this spot like brothers and sisters in this city and all over the world are gathering in other spots and gather in the name of Jesus and worship you and hear your word. And Father, as we've prayed so many times, would you help us? There are no words like your words. There are no words as heavy and as precious and as piercing and as life-giving and as convicting as your words. So open our ears, we pray, to hear you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the first homes that that Dana and I had as a, a young couple was an apartment And we were on the second floor of this apartment building. And in an apartment below us was a couple. The husband was in graduate school and he was studying meteorology. In fact, he kind of became an expert about El Nino. Remember all the news about El Nino? One time they had us down to their place for dinner. And hanging on the wall in sort of a place of prominence was a nicely framed photo of a tornado. Now, not only was the husband uh, studying meteorology, but that they were storm chasers. 
And um, let's just say that Mississippi is a target-rich environment for that. So they had actually seen this just classic, huge funnel cloud, took a photo of it, blew it up, and, and, uh, and framed it, place of prominence on their wall. And we were talking about it, and, and they both said that when they spotted that particular tornado, they called, I don't know who the you know, authorities are that you call, but like the National Weather Service, and said, we're looking at a funnel cloud. And the person on the other end of the phone said, you know, looking at whatever instrumentation, we don't see any activity in your area. And the husband said, I'm looking at the tornado. To which the person said, we don't identify any activity in your area. And he finally, this is like pre-cell phone as he's about to get off the payphone. I'm going to mail you a picture of the tornado. I'm looking at it. Here's something that we tend to forget about God. Because we are so time bound. We live our lives in time. And, and Americans are notorious for being so time conscious. We, there's actually, a, I think it's in the Philippines that Americans are known as the people who wear their gods on their wrist. We're very time conscious. Because we live in it. God is beyond time. He interacts in time. But he created time and he's not constrained by time. We tend to think of the future, because this is how we experience is that it's only this thing that is yet to be, but it's unseen. All the future is fully seen clearly to God as he has decreed it. And in the Bible, and this goes from our first book of Genesis all, all the way to Revelation, big time Revelation. God either directly or through messengers will tell people like us, I'm looking at a coming judgment. I'm looking at it. And typically, we're the ones who are sort of saying, I don't see anything. Uh, nothing in my life indicates that that's true. Nothing in my feelings indicates that that's true. That actually sounds weird, so it must not be true. And God, in effect, is saying to us, I'm looking at it. Whether you can see it or not. He, he does that in this passage. And it's interesting that he confides not in the city that is about to undergo the judgment that he already sees. But in his friend Abraham. So I, I want to look at two things. Both what God is about to bring. What he confides into Abraham about. And then how Abraham advocates. So I want to think about judgment and advocacy. If we may call it that, judgment and advocacy. And first about the judgment. Um, to, to give a sense of just really how God does talk to Abraham like a friend, I, I've never forgotten this. I heard Tim Keller preach on this text uh, years ago at our denomination's General Assembly in Charlotte, North Carolina. This was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago. And, uh, and I've got to give him credit for this because he, he made this point. You know, like when a friend is talking to you and your friend says, you know... I probably shouldn't tell you this. That when your friend says, I probably shouldn't tell you this, he or she is already starting to tell you. And we do that. I probably shouldn't tell you this. I'm already starting to tell you. When God says in verse 17, basically to these other two angelic beings, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? He's already starting to tell his friend Abraham what he's doing. 
He's speaking to him as a friend. Again, not as someone who's a resident of the city and the area that will undergo the judgment, but as his friend. And note what he says in verse 19, because he talks about what we're talking about, what I'm telling you, and then what you're going to hear about, perhaps witness, is to impact literally how you parent. Not just what you think about me, but what you teach your descendants about me. Look at what he says in verse 19. For I have chosen him, God, I have chosen Abraham, that he may command his children and his house hold after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, you are about to get a very strong dose of who I am and what I value and what I condemn. Now remember, this is before the Ten Commandments. This is before the revelation of God's law. When God encapsulates, what do I expect of you, Abraham, as my friend? The one whom I've chosen to bless. What do I expect of your descendants? Is that you do righteousness and do justice. And, and I, I want to mention this because this is going to come up as, as we continue. We're living in a cultural moment because... We're living in a cultural moment in which... Because the word justice can be wielded in different ways, by different constituencies, some people will think, hey, I'm being biblical and careful if I'm really staying away from that word justice. Because you know what that sounds like? Doing justice, that sounds like cultural Marxism to me. That sounds like being woke to me. I'm a biblical Christian. Okay, please understand how replete the scriptures are with the language, even before the law of God, not just of criminal justice that we uphold and we agree with and we submit to, but of those who know God doing justice, giving people their due. One prophet later says this on God's behalf. What is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Before Mount Sinai, God says, I want you to understand and your descendants to understand that I've chosen you to do justice and to do righteousness, to reflect what I'm like. So what is the judgment for? Now look back at that little snippet from chapter 13 about Sodom. Chapter 13, verse 13, it says, The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I mean... We're talking great sinners in a pagan world. Great sinners in the area of the Canaanites. That is to be a great sinner. Down in chapter 18, verse 20, he says that their sin is very grave. Now, here's the question. What is Sodom's sin? Now, you may be thinking, I don't know tons about the Bible, but I can tell you what that is. And it's sexual. And, and in the next chapter, you may or may not have read this yet, but in the next chapter, when those two angelic beings appearing as men, when they come into Sodom, they're brought into the home of Abraham's nephew, Lot, who now lives there. And the men of the city surround the home with the intent of sexually assaulting these two men. 
So certainly there is this connotation of sexual sin and sexual deviation, even assault. And in, in, you know, in case there's any doubt, in the italics, look after our text. This is from the next to the last book of the Bible, Jude. It refers to this incident, and it says this. I'm kind of picking up mid-sentence. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. All right, so you look at that, and it's easy just to say, slam dunk. It's just sexual deviation, sexual perversion. That's what it is. That was certainly there. In rare form. But here's what sometimes goes under-recognized. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, actually names, from his point of view, what Sodom's condemnation was for. Look in that other italics, italicized passage from Ezekiel 16. The Lord says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, now that probably means the surrounding cities, She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, I don't say this this way to be unnecessarily provocative, but I just say this to be frank. When we look at a passage like this, we tend to either read it red or blue. Or our lenses are red or blue. If you read it red, the issue is sexual perversion. Sexual violence. Unnatural desires. That's the language of scripture. So, like, that's the deal. If you read it blue, you probably zero in on that Ezekiel passage of they neglected the poor and the needy and were arrogant and unjust. That's what God says is the issue. And friends, here's the reality. God, Almighty God, who sees the whole of our lives, He sees the entire ecosystem of sin. He doesn't read it red. And he doesn't read it blue. He sees the whole ecosystem of our rebellion and our fallenness. And all of it invites his justice. Then what does he say? He says that because of what Sodom is doing, the whole of it, there's this thing that he calls an outcry. Look in uh, in verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And then the next verse, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Now, that term outcry typically is used of when somebody is receiving injustice. They're being treated cruelly or oppressed or their life is in danger. Their life is crushed and they're crying out, somebody help me. And that cry rises up to God. If they were neglecting the poor and the needy, that cry must have been going up. Even if they don't know they're praying to Yahweh, they're just crying out, someone help us. But you know what? It may mean that. It may also be a reference to something like the first time you hear about a cry going up to God in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 4 when Adam and Eve's son Cain 
murders his brother, their other child, Abel. And after Cain murders Abel, God confronts Cain and he says, The blood of your brother in the ground is crying out to me. It's an amazing claim that, that actually the creation itself, not just a person, but the created matter, is crying out to God. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans chapter 8, says the whole creation groans that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Whether it was the cry of the poor, neglected, or whether it is the creation in that area just groaning about the way Sodom does life. This cry goes up to God and he hears it. And he responds to it. Um, I want to return to this thing about God seeing the whole of our sin. And I want you to think about something that the Lord Jesus said one time to the Pharisees and the scribes. There's this chapter in the Gospel of Matthew where he just goes to town with the scribes and the Pharisees. It's Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, verse 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he says this, For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin. He's saying like these, uh, you know, food for cooking, herbs for cooking. You'll actually take a tenth of that and tithe it to the Lord because you're crossing your T's and you're dotting your I's. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And then what does he say those are? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You know, there's a way to do conservatism in a godless way. There's a way to do liberalism, thinking that you're very progressive, that you're very compassionate. There's a way to do that in a godless way. God wants the whole of our lives to be righteous. Not just in a red way or a blue way, but in the whole way that only He is able to give us. There is no political party, there is no institution that gives the whole of righteousness the way God does. Yes, sexual purity, yes, and care for the poor and the needy, yes. God cares about the whole. Um, I want to recognize this too, it's just, and I've I've sort of said this before in this series, but I'll say it again. It, It does, friends, feel odd to stand up and talk to intelligent people about a coming judgment. It's July. Beautiful day. July 4th is tomorrow. I hope you have fun plans. I'd love for you to have fun plans. I hope you have a great lunch after this. Maybe you're already thinking about lunch. It just doesn't... Like, we're looking at our instrument panels and it doesn't feel like there's anything coming. But every smaller judgment in the Scriptures, this plague... God taking this person's life, this judgment, this conduct. All those are precursors to a great final judgment. And did you know that Jesus actually refers to this in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah when he was talking to his hometown, or about his hometown? Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but the Gospels indicate that later, probably more in his adult life, he moved to Capernaum. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew about Capernaum. Matthew says, 
Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And here's what he says to his hometown. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Uh, I bring that before you because if there's anyone who gets it right, it's Jesus. And he says that, you know what? If you harden your heart to the great mighty works that I am doing... And by the way, when he says this, people don't yet know he's going to rise from the dead. But if you harden your heart to that, if you get jaded to that, if you dismiss that and get bored by that, understand you will place yourself in a position at the day of judgment where it will be easier for the men and women of Sodom than for you. But we do have to be reminded, friends, as Jesus reminded us frequently, we do have to remember there is a coming reckoning of the human race. Every smaller judgment points ahead to a final judgment. Well, Abraham sees that the stakes are high. Uh, when does he realize he's talking to God? And it seems to be, again, this is before the, the, the text in the bulletin. At one point, this man, now the two other men are going to go on to Sodom, but this third man says to Abraham, finally, this time next year, Sarah will have a child. Now, we know about that. No one else knew about that. That was a family secret. And he's been waiting a long time for that secret to do something. And this man stands before him that he thought is a stranger and a visitor passing through, and this Stranger, that's a man, says to him, I will give Sarah a child next year. And it starts to dawn on Abraham that I'm not talking to a man. I am talking to Yahweh. So what does he do? He, uh, he starts to advocate. And I want to think about a couple of things. What does he ask for and what does God offer? What does Abraham ask for and what does God offer? Now, I, I really had to sit and wrestle with this. Is, what, is Abraham really just asking, will you spare my family? I've got this nephew Lot and his family. They live in Sodom. If you do this to that whole city, they'll get killed. That seems unjust to me. Is he just praying, get my family out? Well, that's not what he prays. And interestingly, that's what God ended up doing. God, through those two angelic messengers, extracts Lot's family. And judgment does fall on Sodom and the surrounding cities. But that's not what Abraham asked for. Look, look at the language. You've got to really slow down and, and, and look carefully. Look in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city... Now get this, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And here's what he's asking. Lord, won't you be willing to let thousands of men and women in Sodom keep being violent, keep being perverted, keep being unjust? 
continue in their abominations. Won't you let them keep doing that for the sake of the righteous? That is a bold request. Uh, why did he start with 50? And I think that Abraham must have done that thing that maybe you've done. Have you ever been part of like a group of people that are planning an event? Or, or, or you know, they're going to try to pull off something. And maybe somebody says, all right, we're going to need 10 people. We're going to need 10 volunteers to do such and such. And you go, ah, that's no problem. We can get 10 people. And then maybe the leader goes, okay, you get the 10 volunteers. And then they move on to the next thing. And you go, oh, crud, I really was thinking of two. I have like two friends that I think could volunteer. And now that I think about it, I bet they won't do it. So now i got to find 10. I wish I'd said one. But I started with 10. It's almost as if Abraham says, Lord, I, for 50, would you, would you just... Would you sweep away the whole city? And God says, no, I, I won't do that for 50. It's almost as if Abraham goes, oh, crud, this is Sodom. And from everything I've heard about it and everything my nephew's ever told me about it, we're not going to find 50. And so he starts to step it back. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled about not just why did he start at 50, why did he end at 10? And I don't know that we can conclusively say, but think about have you ever had this experience where you're in a restaurant and uh, maybe the server comes by and says, can I get you anything else? And maybe you say, uh, could I get some more salad dressing? And they're about to walk off. Oh, oh, and could you also get me like a half sweet tea, half unsweetened iced tea? And they're about to walk off. Uh, one last thing. Could you also get us some crackers? Even with the best server, around the third or fourth one, you feel like the relationship has changed. And that that iced tea may not come back to me the way I would hope it would come. If you hit the fourth when you really start to, like, I feel funny. I don't want to say anything else to the server anymore except thank you. I, I, I don't want to beat this to death, but just think about really Abraham before someone that looks like a man, but he perceives that I'm talking to Yahweh. 50, 45, 40, 30 20, 10, I think, the, I think it just got too hot in the kitchen. Because it, the way it ends is so anticlimactic, like 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, and then Abraham walked off. Like, whew, enough. Because he realizes who he's talking to. Um, what does God offer? Verse 26. I know we've read this, but just let this wash over you. If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And we don't know what size Sodom was. Cities were, in that day would be smaller than what we consider a big city. But let's say Sodom had 5,000 people in it. Abraham, if 10 righteous people are there, I will let the other 4,990 people live their lives, do their abominations, if 10 righteous are there. I've read this passage for a long time. That hit me more than it has ever hit me before. And, and do you know what that is just screaming? Is what the New Testament makes absolutely explicit, is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's how Peter says it. The Apostle Paul says it this way. 
God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus says his heavenly father is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And I want to push in on all our hearts here for a second. Do we really believe that God is not willing that the pedophile should perish? But that he should come to repentance? That God wants the pedophile to be saved? Do we really believe that God is not willing that the racist would perish? But that he or she would come to repentance? Do we believe that God is not willing that the abortion provider who does it with a glad hand and advocates for it, that God is concerned for him or her and is not willing that they should perish, but that they should come to repentance and know him? It's interesting. Abraham, in some ways, is a photographic negative of the prophet Jonah. And Jonah got ready for the evil city of Nineveh to be destroyed. And in Jonah chapter 4, last chapter of Jonah, he almost sets up a lawn chair with a Yeti cup to watch the nuclear strike on Nineveh. This is going to be awesome. And God doesn't. And it makes Jonah mad because they're bad. And you should destroy them. They should perish. And God takes his own prophet Jonah to task and says, there are 120,000 people in that city. And he even talks about the animals there. And many animals. Shouldn't I be concerned for that great city? It is almost jarring to us that God could be that compassionate. That God could look at a North Korean prison guard who tortures someone and he's concerned for that man. He's not willing that he should perish, but that he should come to repentance. That is what God is like. And the thing in us that recoils at that, you know, it, it's showing our cards because you know what's up underneath that. Bad people should perish, and I'm not one of them. People should get what they deserve. I deserve his favor. To not want all people to repent and to come to a knowledge of the truth deep, deep down is to broadcast to God our self-righteousness. Um, but let me say this. Abraham is not the first major human character in Genesis. He's, he's major. But the first major human character is Adam. And Adam shows us a very important principle that even shows up in this. And that is that in God's economy, an entire community of people can be so identified with a group, a smaller group of people or even with an individual that what happens to that person affects the whole. An entire group of people can be in solidarity with a smaller group or with an individual so much so that what happens to them happens to the entire group. That strains Americans who think as individualists. But if you were reading Genesis through, here's what you already would have learned from Genesis. Is that this one man was unrighteous. 
and it affected the entire community of the human race because God identified them with him so closely because he is the ancestor of all of them. Whether they like it or not, whether we like it or not. But what if God worked that in reverse? You know, again, what do we wish Abraham would have said? Would you do it for 10? I'll do it for 10. Okay. I promise this is the last thing I'm going to say. If one righteous person was found, would you spare the whole for one? That would be the crescendo. And everything in the text seems to indicate that God wouldn't have just arbitrarily cut off at four. He'd say, yeah, one. And what does the New Testament say? There is one who came who is perfectly righteousness, who perfectly did justice and righteousness. And if you are identified with him, you are spared. And all who are in solidarity with him, not through their works, but through this thing called faith, that they are spared by the judge of all the earth because of his righteousness the gospel of Jesus Christ is not if you'll be righteous enough God will love you that is anti-gospel the gospel is if the many were made unrighteous by that one man Adam all those who place their faith in the one righteous man will be made righteous Romans 5 19 last thing and I'm done there are all these beautiful names for Christians in the New Testament. Often it's not Christian. That's fairly uncommon in the New Testament. But children and the church and the body and saints and children of light. It's great stuff. But you know what's a, what's a name for believers that we don't talk about a lot? Is that we're called priests. If you're in Christ, you're a priest. What does it look like to embrace priesthood? Because you and I can't atone for anyone's sins. But a priest stands between God and people who need that God. Friends, our reputation as Christians, especially in this cultural moment, is that we are screaming at the culture saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Do you know what it looks like to be priests? Is to get into what Jesus called your closet. And to get on our knees and to advocate for our workplace. And advocate for the family member who makes fun of my faith. To advocate for the enemies of God and the church. To advocate for the nation most opposed to God and his word. If I could leave you with one thing it would be to say, say this. If you are in Jesus Christ, if the God of Abraham is your God. Embrace your priesthood. And say, Lord, would you not tarry until you grant repentance to that person? Because you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are more compassionate than we can imagine. You are more patient than we can imagine. You are kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And you have been merciful to the likes of us. 
we pray that your loving heart would come into our heart. That we would, would reflect your patient, compassionate heart. We pray that we would hate sin. We pray that, Lord, we would hear the same outcry that you hear. We pray that we would repent before you. And Lord, we ask that you would stir up our hearts to be the priests that we are and to advocate for our families and our workplaces, our next door neighbors, the people who frustrate us, the vocal enemies of you in the church. We pray that we would be the priests that you made us to be. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.